Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's edition of the About to Review podcast. I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It is listed on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Alexa via TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, and a host of other places. You can also stream the episodes directly from the website abouttreview.com. Make sure to follow the podcast on social media at About Review, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All right. On this week's episode, it is another solo show because schedules have been real crazy lately. So I am alone in the studio yet again uh, talking to you, my dear listeners, uh, as I slowly go insane whenever I'm in the studio by myself. This week's episode has a review for The House with a Clock in Its Walls, Life Itself, uh, Small Fish, which is a short film, part of the Crazy Eights Film Festival up in Vancouver, BC, and The Dragon Prince, the new animated show on Netflix. So yeah, uh, I'm going to be talking about that. Probably going to be a shorter episode this week while I kind of get ready for the craziness that is going to be going on next week at New York City Comic Con. Yeah, it is, it is going to be crazy. I will be there for like six or seven days and I have already lined up some pretty cool interviews. So yeah, so going to be a shorter episode. Before we get into the geek news and, of course, the reviews, we will go into the original theme song created by Damien Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Welcome back from the theme song. Uh, so first, before the geek news, actually, um, I want to say thank you to thank you again to Renton City Comic Con. Uh, I talked about them on last week's episode with Nick and Dyer from the Northwest Nerd podcast. Yeah, it was really great. I had some really great feedback from that episode, and I always encourage feedback, even if it is just a shout out to be like, hey, I liked hearing your interview with Stephen K. Smith. Or, you know, or Stephen C. Smith. <laughs> Stephen K. Smith was the other one. Uh, you know, I got another, a nice email about Amaya, the young 13-year-old artist that I interviewed. So, yeah, anytime you're listening to the episode and you either want to know more about the episode or the people that I talk to, definitely hit me up on social media or send me an email, which is at abouttreview, or not, that would be weird, aboutreview at gmail.com or you can send it to the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash aboutreview. The other thing that Facebook did recently is they got rid of the star ratings for your business page or your kind of, yeah, your, your general business page, which I kind of agree with because star ratings are kind of crazy. Hence why I created my own rating system. We'll get into that later. Uh, but if you go on the Facebook page for About to Review, you can now leave kind of a comment uh, under a recommendation as opposed to a rating. So that would be great if you want to leave a recommendation on the Facebook page. But yeah, reach out to me if you have any questions or if you just want to talk about things that you either want to go more in depth on that I talked about on an episode or about anything else. I'm always available and I encourage that feedback. Now, 
straight into the geek news, which is kind of just a trailer breakdown extravaganza because there were some big trailers uh, that came out this week and within the past couple days. The first of which, and somewhat almost surprising at how much it is exciting me. At No, that sounds weird. How much it excites me? Now that also sounds weird. Uh, how interested I am in this movie unexpectedly, which is the new Bumblebee trailer. Yes, the sixth Transformers live-action movie in this universe, I guess, that is kind of connected, although we will see how connected it is, or if they are just starting fresh, because we might not see Bumblebee fight Nazis like it was alluded to in the last night, or with Harriet Tubman leading people in the Underground Railroad. Who knows? But this Bumblebee trailer really looks fun. Which, every time I watch a new trailer, which they just dropped a second one, or this might be the third one, every time I see it, I'm like, why? Why am I excited for this when I have been burned by this franchise ever since the the second one? The first one still kind of holds up, still looks really cool. Everything after that just got ridiculous. But this Bumblebee trailer, one of the reasons I think that I am excited for it is all of the Gen 1 Transformers that they have been showing so far. I will not go into detail over all of them because I know that some of my listeners uh, do not watch trailers. And so I do not want to spoil it for them. But there are some amazing Gen 1 Transformers in there. A slight spoiler, I guess. But you see very briefly, OG Soundwave. Looks just like he did in the old cartoon. And out comes a tape, and it becomes Ravage. Looks awesome. A lot better than kind of... We did see... We have seen Ravage in one of the newer ones. And he was just really spiky and weird. We kind of saw Laserbeak also in another one, which was Soundwave's other cassette tape. Which I never understood the proportions of Soundwave. Everyone else, I was like, cool. Optimus turns into a truck, and then he is big. All right. Soundwave is a giant robot that turns into like an 80s boombox and stores other Transformers inside of the boombox. The physics, man, I do not understand how that works, but it does. And this trailer has me excited and scared because I should not be this excited about a new Transformers movie based on everything that has happened in the past few years, but it has me. I'm definitely interested in this Bumblebee movie. So yeah, so that is the first one. The next trailer that they initially dropped like a 24-second teaser of that I put up on my social media, Joker. Now, not not the other Joker movie. The not No, not that one that you were thinking of. The other, other Joker movie. The one that actually is happening. Not one of the other like six that they have been talking about and or planning. This is the Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix in it. Uh... And it is directed by Todd Phillips, who did the whole Hangover films. Not quite sure how how the tone is going to be different. But in this 24-second teaser, where it was kind of the color test that Todd, Phillip, Todd Phillips put up on his Instagram of walking kind of first, going through the motions and the makeup, it is 24 seconds, and Joaquin sold me. He shows such range in that less than 30 second clip where I cannot wait to see what he does in the movie. Fast forward to like a day or two later 
we get a behind the scenes video of some sort of like subway scene or underground scene where he is rushing out of or walking out of a subway car and there's chaos. That also is a very, very short scene, but it looks compelling. It looks interesting and kind of what time period this is going to take place in. Some of the characters in that subway scene, it made it look like the 70s, maybe the like early 80s. So we really do not know what time period it is taking place in, but we do know that Thomas Wayne is still alive. Thomas and Martha Wayne are still alive. We have not seen anything of Bruce yet or any news. The both of them are still alive. Whether or not Joker has a hand in their untimely demise or not, we'll have to wait and see. Personally, I hated that aspect of Tim Burton's Batman. I truly do not want that to happen again in this new film. Do something different. You can introduce the Joker, have one of his henchmen, or maybe someone completely unconnected to him shoot Thomas and Martha Wayne. But yeah, from what we have seen so far, Thomas Wayne is in it. He is alive. If he lives through the whole thing, who knows? But yeah, this one, again, has me excited and has me scared (laughs) because it looks really solid so far. I'm interested to hear his laugh and his voice because the character so far that we have seen is very similar like the like Cesar Romero, like Batman 1966 style as far as makeup and kind of general aesthetic. I need to hear his voice. I need to hear that laugh because is it going to be the obviously Mark Hamill, the perfection of the Joker persona Is it going to be that type of laugh? Is it going to be a Heath Ledger kind of maniacal laugh? I just, I'm really curious and they have not released anything out of him speaking or especially that laugh. So I think they might hold on to that until the first actual trailer. Who knows? Because we we see him laughing in that teaser video. Do not hear it. But that is such a quintessential part of the Joker persona. I just, I got to see it. So I'm interested in that. Uh, The next trailer, before I go into the last bit of news, is the new Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, or no, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald uh, trailer. This was a film that kind of blew me away a couple years ago when it came to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I was not really sure kind of how this new entry into the Potter legacy, this the Potter pantheon, that is a tongue twister, trying to say that ten times fast, the Potter pantheon, you know, how it was going to fit in. Was it going to feel disjointed? Where? What about the timelines? Then the movie came out. I watched it and thoroughly enjoyed it. I also called that it was going to be nominated for Best Costume Design, and it was because the costumes were ridiculous and amazing. This new trailer that just dropped today as I'm recording this looks fantastic and also a little bit disjointed because we see you know, kind of Newt Scamander and all of his kind of jovial personality mixed with Johnny Depp's Grindelwald, this dark menacing force as he is kind of building, I'll not even say an army yet. I would say building kind of his followers and his group. And so even in the trailer, it was a little bit disjointed. That was kind of one of my problems with Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is it tonally, when it switched, it was a hard left. 
And instead of like these like cute little monsters, you know, one of them is stealing diamonds and we have to go save it. And then suddenly we have a kid who is possessed and just madness is happening. So I kind of hope they transition through those themes a little bit better in this new one. But I'm all on board. Super excited for uh, Fantastic Beasts and the Crimes of Grindelwald. Uh, And then the last bit of geek news. Before I get into the movie reviews, Patrick Stewart, Sir Patrick Stewart, how dare I, uh, shared a behind-the-scenes image on his Instagram of the writer's room for his new Star Trek TV show. Words cannot describe how excited I am to see what they are doing with this. I have said it before. I hope that it just kind of that he maybe is at the academy, you know, as a general or kind of professor, because that was something that he was always passionate about was was teaching or he goes left and has become an archaeologist, which is something he also loved to do. There are plenty of episodes where he just goes on archaeological hunts and digs. That would be interesting if he has gone off and done that. And then they're like, hey, we need you at the academy. Can you come back and help us? Details are non-existent of this show, when it takes place, where it takes place, who else is going to be there from the next generation. Again, personally, as much as I love the next generation, it is a show that means so much to me. I really, really want them to limit how many people from that TV show are in this new one. Patrick Stewart makes sense. He still looks great. He still looks the part. Like, easily, put him in a Starfleet uniform, boom, he has Captain Picard again. Everybody else, I kind of feel like we wrapped up their stories pretty neatly. You know, not just with the end of Star Trek The Next Generation, the TV show, but with the, you know, sequential movies that came out after that. I Yeah, I feel like everybody else, we're good. We can kind of wrap it up. But just give me more Patrick Stewart. So the fact that this is happening, that he showed the writer's room... <laughs> That steps are being taken to make this reality all on board. So, yeah, super excited for that. Uh, Now, going into the movie review section, the first one on the docket is the Jack Black-led and Kate Blanchett-led The House with a Clock in Its Walls. Now, going into this, I had not seen a trailer. I did not really know anything about it except that it was based on some books I have never seen the books. I have never read the books, which would make sense if I have never seen the books. But regardless, I went into this with a clean slate. I was like, all right, it kind of looks goosebumps-ish. So just let me give it a shot. I like Jack Black. Kate Blanchett, after Thor Ragnarok, shows that just she can just kind of do a fun project. And she has done that before. I mean, she was in the Oceans movie. But yeah, she has kind of turned, not even say turned a corner, But you can tell in movies that she has done recently, she is having fun. So the book series that it is based off of, this movie is based off of, started in 1973. And they have made 12 books. The last one came out in 2008. Only the first few were written by the original author, John Belairs. He passed away in 91 and so had some unfinished manuscripts. And those were then kind of taken and created the next series of books but this movie is essentially just book one so we get to know a young orphan 
named Louis Barnevelt as he is kind of thrust upon, thrust into this magical world that he never knew existed because of his uncle. Well, he is now kind of living with his uncle, Jonathan Barnevelt, because his parents have died. We do not know how. Uh, we do not really know when, other than obviously somewhat close to when he is being sent to live with his uncle. That kind of plays into one of my problems with this movie in that I can tell watching this movie, there are so many gaps in the movie that I know are probably in the book that people who have read some of the books can watch this and be like, oh, okay, well, they left that out because of this, 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 and this actually happened. Me not knowing anything about this series, I, I could just feel that there were just chunks left out. So after his parents die in, I forget, even I think it was a car crash or something. They're super vague on it. He goes to live with his uncle, you know, who's Jack Black. And Jack Black's neighbor is Kate Blanchett, who plays Florence Zimmerman. And now he starts to see that magic is real and kind of what is his part in it. Did his family know about it? Because Jonathan is a warlock. So kind of what, what way, in what way did magic, you know, in what, what was it involved in the family? That was really convoluted. I apologize for that. But it was just, again, it goes back to, I could just feel that parts were missing and I needed those. I think other people not knowing those storylines maybe need a little bit more, not necessarily spoon feed us, but be like, hey, this is what happened. And here's what it leads to, as opposed to like, this is what happens, and boom, we're on to the next thing without really giving us time to, you know, absorb what was happening. Uh, the young boy is played by Owen Vaccaro, who was great. This kid, man, he can cry. Uh, he can cry real good <laughs> to the point where it would just be like kind of in the middle of a scene, something would happen, the camera would pan to him, and just waterworks. So good for you, kid. If you figured out how to do that early, that will serve you well in the acting business. Uh, some of the other characters are Kyle McLaughlin and Renee Elise Goldberry. Pretty much everyone else in the cast, it does not matter because they are not really in the movie. Even Kyle McLaughlin and Renee Elise Goldberry are, are in it, but not that much. So it really is just kind of this trio of Jack Black, Kate Blanchett, and Owen Vaccaro as they're trying to figure out this mystery of the house. And there's a secret in the house. And how do they go about finding the secret? And does Owen have the ability or abilities to help in this kind of quest? So overall, like the performances were solid. Everybody was everybody was solid in it. Kate Blanchett, I could tell, was just having fun on set. The chemistry between Jack Black and Kate Blanchett was great. Like it felt organic, felt natural. So that was good. It just it it just it felt like it was missing something. And I forgot to mention this is directed by Eli Roth. Yes, this children's movie is directed by Eli Roth, the person who has made his career on bloody gross-out horror films. The reason I bring that up, not just because I should because he is the director, is because some of the tone, some of the imagery in this film is intense. 
almost to the point where it was just not uncomfortable, but it was like, this is still a kid's movie. And I think it, let me pull it up. Uh, yeah, it was rated PG, but it, it was, it was veering really close, like PG 13, which really is not a big jump from PG to PG 13. But I was just surprised at some of the imagery that they kind of got away with for a PG rating. It was intense. I made the joke after I saw the, the screen or after the screening, when I was talking to the studio rep and some fellow critics, there were almost scarier moments or more intense moments in this than there was in The Nun. A horror movie. An R-rated horror movie. So there were some like kind of legitimate, you know, jump scares in this that worked well. But there are these weird pumpkin creatures that are legitimately kind of scary. And I was like, this is a PG film. There was a kid, a younger person, I'm not sure how old, a couple rows behind me in the screening. And there were times when I could hear him you know, just make these noises and be like, uh, like he was uncomfortable. He was scared. So that was just kind of weird. I liked the practical effects and the set design, but kind of speaking to those jack-o'-lantern creatures, that switch to CGI, whew, it, it is blatant that those characters just do not have any weight that they were not, like nothing was on set, you know, for those, it was like Cape Blanchett, fire something in that general direction and then over your shoulder and then over there. Trust me, something will be there. That was just kind of weird. Like it felt kind of aimless in that. So the CGI was glaringly obvious in a lot of the scenes. I get it. You know, you cannot always do practical effects, but it was just, it was a big shift. So, I mean, one of the creatures is a chair kind of like uh, Pee Wee's playhouse or Pee Wee's big adventure or whatever the, Pee-wee character was. I never liked Pee-wee. Um, I think it was like Cherry or whatever. Damien is going to be so mad at me when he listens to this. Uh, but yes. So there's a chair, totally CGI, kind of weightless, even for a chair. So that was kind of weird. Uh, but yeah. Overall, solid performances. If they try and spin this off into multiple movies, which there are 12 books, so they have plenty of material... I, I'm not sure as of right now, there's enough kind of meat on the bones to, to make that happen. Who knows? The second movie could be great. And that could bring in some new characters, bring in some more development, which again was to me, that was lacking. I, I did not really know where and why these characters came from. And they would mention things every now and then Kate Blanchett would be like, Oh, you know, when such and such happened, and it would kind of like the music would kind of crescendo a little bit, almost waiting for a flashback and then nothing. And I was like, oh, uh, apparently we're not going to know that story that they were just mentioning. Cool. I guess the book readers from 1973 are going to know that and love it. So a little bit weird. Uh, but OK, the rating system here on the About to Review podcast, as I mentioned earlier, there are no star ratings. There are no letter grades. It is a completely unique system that I was the only one to ever think of this combination of these words. The three choices, and only three choices, are good, bad, or ugly. A good film is something that you came out of the theater, you liked it, you enjoyed it, you wanted to tell your friends about it. It was a good time. A bad film, you walked out of the theater and you were like, okay, I don't feel like I wasted, you know, that two hours, but it also did not really do anything for me. Ugly, avoid at all costs. Pretty simple rating system, and I explained it on every episode, and I have explained it on every episode. 
for the past 126 episodes, so why stop now? My official rating for The House with a Clock in Its Walls, this is tough because I want to give it a bad because it was just kind of off and there are there are missing holes kind of all over but the performances and just the gen like genuine fun that I could tell the actors were having and the interactions that they had with each other pushes it up to good but not by much so my official rating is good for the house the clock and its walls but it, it yeah it easily could have slipped into bad had the performances not been there so yeah there we go next movie is Life Itself. Now, this is a movie in a genre that I usually avoid, uh, which is kind of the romance drama stuff. Uh, (laughs) It is written and directed by Dan Fogelman, who is kind of has become the king of the schmaltz because he did a little show, does a little show called This Is Us which keeps winning awards at every award show. Everybody cries at every episode. My timeline is chock full, whether it is Facebook or Twitter, not so much Instagram, but Facebook and Twitter. When people are watching, they're like, I cried six times in this episode. The episodes are 60 minutes. Like what is happening on the show? Apparently it is really, really well written. I have not watched not only even a single episode. I have not watched a single minute of this is us. So I cannot speak to that. All I know is that it is super schmaltzy and good, question mark. But this movie, Life Itself, is a kind of multi-generational love story where we have, let me see, one, two, three main storylines over kind of three generations and how they interconnect and what is love, what is family, what is friendship, what is... You know, all of these themes, you know, that are recurring throughout the movie. It starts off with a story uh, with Oscar Isaacs, Oscar Isaac and Olivia Wilde, you know, as this kind of young couple and Oscar Wilde or Oscar Wilde, <laughs> uh, Oscar Isaac is a screenwriter and he has this idea for the script, which is the about the unreliable narrator. Solid idea. We see Samuel L. Jackson in the first like five minutes. And then not again, because that was part of his script. And we were watching part of that script as he was the unreliable narrator. It was weird. And I was like, okay, this is how the movie is going to go. This, this is an interesting kind of twist on, on things. Let me see what happens. Yeah, that never happens again. Nothing like that ever happens again. So it's kind of weird. <laughs> just kind of thrown in there. Uh, and this... Almost everything I say about this movie could be a spoiler because it is three acts, three different stories, three different generations. Yeah. So I would just kind of go in generalities. The Oscar Isaac and Olivia Wilde story. Oscar Isaac, I feel like, is the only actor in this film who really pushed the envelope, who really kind of took it to a different level or place And was not playing it safe. And almost every other storyline, it feels like they're being held back. Whether that is a director choice, a personal choice, 
not quite sure, but Oscar, I, like when he is going through turmoil, when he is going through grief and we are watching him go through that grief, it is pretty palpable in, in a few of the scenes that was not the same in a lot of these other kind of vignettes and, and stories that we see. So that this film also stars Annette Benning, Mandy Patinkin, uh, Olivia Cook, Sergio Perez Manchetta, Antonio Banderas, uh, Leia Costa. So it has like some really solid actors in it. The kind of second storyline is not is was my favorite. It takes place in Spain. We have Antonio Banderas and Sergio Perez Manchetta and Leia Costa. I really liked that storytelling that they were doing in that kind of middle act, that second act. Antonio Banderas, first of all, looks great. Like he, he looks really good. He gives a phenomenal performance. One of his best performances in years. And it was believable and it was nuanced. Uh, Sergio Manchetta, he was also really good. He was, I mean, he he played his character very well. His character is very one note. And maybe that is how it was written, but he plays it that way and it is consistent. So I cannot really fault him for too much on that. Leia Costa was brilliant. I really liked her storyline. She gives one of the most powerful monologues in her kind of section. Uh, actually, not even, it just kind of, it kind of bleeds into the third act. But she gives a great monologue. The camera just sticks on her face for like four minutes as she gives us monologue in Spanish, which is amazing that a large proportion of this movie was in Spanish. It makes sense because it takes place in Spain. I say that and I point that out because a lot of these movies that take place in certain geographical locations, everybody speaks English. I like that Dan Fogelman had the kind of, not even gumption, it is weird to be like, Oh, man, he was brave for putting that in Spanish. At the same time, he does deserve some respect, you know, for putting it in Spanish and trusting the actors and the performances and trusting that people are going to sit there and read subtitles. We can handle it. Just give it to us. I'm a huge proponent of more movies with subtitles. Anyway, so she gives this beautiful monologue um, in, in her part. The third act of this movie is kind of where it starts to fall apart. Um, I mean, the Oscar Isaac story is is also kind of a mess. Second part is great. Third one is just weird. And and they're trying to connect all the loose ends and they're making the connections and who do, who knows who and how are they connected? Okay, sure. Um it just it felt like they were just trying to rush to the end to make sure everything was connected. It this movie went from emotional like I legitimately even in my little heart of stone I got a little choked up in some of the scenes especially that monologue that uh Leia Costa's character Isabel gives. Like I was I was getting a little bit choked up. I was like this is a great performance and what she is saying is incredible. But man, it goes off the rails and immediately in the last like 15 minutes of the movie just becomes Hallmark Channel, Lifetime Channel, level of schmaltz that almost just took away from everything that they had been building in the rest of the movie. That was just a weird choice. 
Like tonally, it just it switched so dramatically, and I just I'm not sure why. So yeah, this is it. This is done. It's this is an Amazon Studios film, and I'm pretty sure this film is only going to last in theaters for like two weeks. Then they're going to drop it on Amazon Prime Video, and a lot of people are going to watch it because it is there and it is free. And I do think some people are going to enjoy this. I think the people who like This Is Us or the groups of people who like this style of story might enjoy it. With me, I went into this being like, okay, I am here for the cast, not the genre, the cast. I only choose to see movies in the genre a couple times a year. So I guess for me, they don't really weigh heavily on me. A lot of the other critics, man, they did not like this movie. They kind of tore it apart. They also see a lot more films in this type of genre. I do not. So for me, it was like, okay, I can recognize the schmaltz, but it is all right. The, the, the characters are good. The performances are solid. So sure. Um, now, I mean, again, I, I could go into more detail, but because they're just kind of vignettes, almost everything would be a spoiler. So this is just a story of coincidence and possibly an unreliable narrator and how those stories weave together. Yeah. Uh, to my rating system, again, good, bad, or ugly. This is a solid bad. It is not an ugly because of those performances in the second act that redeem it. But that schmaltz and that saccharine sweetness of the third act, the last like 15 minutes of this movie, it was it was hard to sit through. The music was just Lifetime Channel-esque. And it was just such a weird tonal shift from this really, really strong performance and monologue in the second act to that. So this is a bad, almost an ugly, but yeah, if you like this genre, give it a chance. I can almost guarantee it will be on Amazon Prime Video in a in a very, very short amount of time. So check it out when you can and when it is free. There's no reason to pay money for this movie. So, uh, okay. Now, those are the only two movie reviews, like feature-length movie reviews. The next movie is actually, uh, like I said, an indie film. A short film from beautiful British Columbia, directed by Maxine uh, Bouchamp. I hope I am pronouncing that right. If not, I apologize. Uh, But yeah, one of the guys that I met um, when I was up in Vancouver covering a different film festival. We stayed connected. Uh, His name is Kent. Great guy. He sent me this film, Small Fish. He was like, hey, I would love for you to check this out. Let me know what you think. So I did. Uh, This is a... This is the second film that I have seen of Max of Maxime. The first one is Iridescent, which I saw at the Vancouver Short Film Festival last year. In this second film, Small Fish, the filmmaking style is very evident. And I can tell where kind of that wheelhouse is. Both of these rely on dance as the medium for dialogue. That is bold not just is it a bold choice to, to think about but to then have compelling dance performances knowing that that is what is going to drive your film that is what people are going to pull the story from pull the dialogue from and really get connected with these characters is through their movements and that type of just lyrical and unspoken 
dialogue is tough to pull off, especially in a short film. So Small Small Fish tells a story of a young painter, you know, as she is working on these pieces and she is exploring just her body and her movements and not really feeling connected to the art, you know, once it was finished and there was not really a positive response to the art of this auction scene that we see. She goes through some adversity, some hardship, as every kind of artist does at some point. And through that, she starts to develop a different tone and a different voice in her art and in her dance and in her movements. Everything changes and fluctuates as she is creating these new pieces, which the next time we see the art gallery have a much different response. So kind of through that hardship, creativity is awakened. Through that hardship, a new wrinkle you know, in her art is developed. So that was just fascinating to watch. Iridescence was also very similar to that in a much more, I would say, uh, kind of obvious tone because in Iridescence, they're using tattoos on the bodies to kind of tell the story along with the dance. This was more subtle. This was more, you know, really having to rely on that dance performance and of her movement and her characterizations to drive the story forward. And it succeeded. Uh, If this is the style that this director kind of fits in, not fits in, created and continues to do, I'm on board. I am totally on board for seeing more creativity like this. Because it is just unique. It is different. You know, when you go to see a modern dance performance or an interpretive dance performance, you know, you can be pulled in, you know, you can be engaged in the performance, but something about the visual storytelling language, you know, they're using in these two films that I have seen is just compelling. And it is different, very different from one to the next. So yeah, uh, my official rating for the film Small Fish, which It was part of the Crazy Eights uh, Film Festival, which is a huge event up in BC. Um, I will put the link to the Crazy Eights events. Paul Armstrong kind of puts that together, and it is a huge festival that I have yet to be able to actually go to and cover, but all of my friends are involved in it, and I get the DVD, you know, every year with the movies on it. So, yeah, definitely support indie films like this. My official rating for Small Fish is good. Really enjoyed it. All right, the last uh, media that I will be reviewing is the show that I mentioned months ago when they first dropped the first trailer that I was already on board for as soon as they dropped the trailer. Then I said last week that when they were dropping the episodes all on a Friday, I was like, yep, guess what I am binging? That show is The Dragon Prince, which is on Netflix. It is nine episodes. It is created by Aaron, I believe it is Ahaz. Uh, I'm not sure. Hopefully, I did not butcher that name also. Aaron was one of the creators and writers and directors of one of the best TV shows of our generation, which was Avatar, The Last Airbender. I do not care who you are, how old you are, how young you are. Watch Avatar, The Last Airbender, the entire season or the entire series, I should say. Three seasons, beautiful, beautiful storytelling. The Dragon Prince is his next project after that. So, and this tells the story of King Harrow, you know, who is a human king and kind of this 
tenuous, not even alliance, because they're not in full-fledged war, but tenuous alliance with the magical kingdom, neighboring kingdom, which has elves and dragons and magic. The humans, after kind of a great war, split. So there's this dividing line in this continent where they do not go. So we have this, we have King Harrow, he has two sons, Callum and Ezrin, and uh, trying to think, I mean, nine episodes, <laughs> 20, 26 minute episodes, short series, um, you can kind of get into, easily it is on Netflix, but yeah, so this is very similar to Avatar where it is a mystical land full of adventure and magic, but the core values of family of togetherness, of sacrifice, parallel from Avatar to this. So this also has uh, some voice actors who, one of which uh, I have met actually up in Vancouver, Paula Burroughs. She plays Rayla, who is a moon shadow elf. And they form kind of an uneasy alliance. The two young princes, Callum and Ezrin, along with Rayla, as the three of them go on this mission, you know, for the majority of the series. One of the things, of the many things that I really enjoyed about the show, I talk about it all the time on this podcast, representation matters. One of my goals with this podcast that I talk to people all the time is to amplify diverse voices in media because it is important to get diverse voices out there. So the show like this, so King Harrow uh, is a dark-skinned man with dreadlocks. His son, Ezrin, is also dark-skinned. His other... Uh, steps or not his stepson uh, his other son you know is not dark-skinned you know they're still brothers there is a deaf character in this general amaya who is not just deaf but she is signing and using american sign language and her soldier uh, her second in command is translating that as she is saying it things like that like i cannot remember the last animated show that had a deaf person on it, that had somebody who was signing that, I mean, that just, that is incredible by itself. You know, so you have different ethnicities, different cultures, different physical attributes and abilities represented in this nine episode season. That is tremendous. It was just, it was really solid that they were able to do that much in a short amount of time. Now, to some of the, some of the things that I had a little bit of a problem with, the accents are all over the place. There is not really a definitive accent for the humans, a definitive accent for the moon shadow elves, a definitive accent for this. Like that was kind of tough because especially when you when they kind of identify one group of of people, the moon shadow elves and who they are and what they do and how scary they are. You would think with such a very specific group that they all kind of live together, they communicate together, that they would have somewhat similar accents. No, um, none of them are the same. <laughs> so again, diversity is important, but at the same time, logically, if you're all from the small sect and you all live in the same place, there should be some consistency there. That is a small gripe, but it, it was it was just weird. You know, when you're trying to get invested in these characters... Those type of consistencies or inconsistencies, you know, are kind of evident. So the other thing that was tough for me watching this 
especially coming off the back of, I say coming off the back of the show, ended like almost a decade ago, of Avatar The Last Airbender, which had gorgeous, fluid animation style. This animation style, this new kind of breed of computer anima- computer animated imagery, it looked, it was off. I mean, it was just, it was unfinished. There were parts of this when I've talked to my friends who are storyboard artists, you know, for animation like this, when you can kind of flip the pages, you know, between them and you have those transitions, then the animator comes in, smooths those out. You know, that is, it is part of the process. There were multiple scenes in this nine episode season where it was stilted, like where the animators had not smoothed it out or finished. And that was just bizarre because there are some of these scenes that have beautiful creature designs, beautiful flowing imagery and action moments. And then in the middle of it, you can tell that a character was not finished, like not drawn and finished by every kind of person on the the production team, I will say. So whether it was the animators who did not smooth it out, the artists who, yeah, that was just, that was weird. And in emotional moments, that can really take you out of it. When again, you are wanting to be in this magical, mystical world. And yet the imagery is stilted. Like it was almost buffering in one scene. And I, I kind of rewound it. I exited out of Netflix, started it again to double check. Nope, it was it was still there. It was not a buffering issue. It was an animation issue. So that was just that was a little bit weird. But I really enjoyed the world that they built in this nine episode season. Like it was, it was, it is short. And I, this is one of the rare Netflix shows where normally like with Marvel shows, they're starting to make a little bit too many. And the episodes, the seasons are a little bit too long. This is too short. This is nine episodes. I want more and I want it soon, but I want it to be finished. I want it to be completed and not, kind of rushed which is what I kind of felt like this was which is weird it is Netflix like what is what is your timeline you're not going for sweeps week you're not going for prime time you know time slots it is on Netflix so why not take that extra month or two smooth out the animation smooth out some of those character designs and present it as a completed project versus something that yeah just it felt unfinished um Jack DeSena was great to hear him again. He is the voice of Callum, one of the young boys. As soon as I heard him, I was like, oh, Sokka from Avatar. That was great. He is a great young voice actor. I am concerned, though, that his character portrayal of Callum is very similar to Sokka. So the kind of comedic relief and yet heartfelt character, it is okay. I just, I'm inter- interested to see where it goes next. Uh, Omari Newton, another Vancouver guy, he was in an episode as Corvus. That was really cool to hear. Uh, but yeah, the the colors, the dynamics, the world of magic and mysticism that it is presenting so far is compelling. It is interesting. I want to know more of what is happening and what has happened in this world. We get a little bit of a history lesson in the beginning, which also is very similar to Avatar. It shows the continent and it was like, there was a time, a time of magic. And I was like, and then the Fire Nation attacked because it sounds very similar and it starts giving that like swooping shot. So, but that is, that is just me. I'm all right with that. 
But yeah, seeing the different cultures was great. The diversity in the cast is really compelling and interesting. So yeah, I, I'm excited for what happens next. Since they just kind of dropped these nine episodes and it ends on a cliffhanger, of course it does. I have no idea when the next season is going to be or if they're going to make it. They also have not talked much about that. So I hope to actually get one of the creative team on the show, mainly because I just want to fanboy out and talk about Avatar and then maybe a little bit about the Dragon Prince. But yeah, so I'm on board for the show. It is interesting. It is exciting. So I give the Dragon Prince a good. So yeah, to kind of wrap up this episode, uh, I talked about the house with a clock in its walls, uh, which got a good but close to a bad because it was just missing parts. Life itself, I gave a bad and almost an ugly because that third act becomes a train wreck and just way too saccharine sweet. Uh, Small Fish, I gave a solid good. Really enjoyed Small Fish. I liked seeing dance as the dialogue. That was just, it was an interesting um, take. And then the Dragon Prince also gets a good. All right, so this episode is actually a little bit longer than I thought because even when I'm talking to myself and by myself, apparently I am still long-winded. So, yeah, thanks for sticking around. Thank you for listening, of course. Some upcoming projects for the About to Review podcast. So next week, there will be a review for Night School, the new Tiffany Haddish, Kevin Hart film, A Star is Born, the Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper film, uh, a preview of you know New York City Comic Con, because I will be actually leaving uh, next week. And then the big thing that is happening on Monday, October 1st, I will be attending Monday Night Raw here in Seattle. (laughs) It will be my first time ever seeing professional wrestling. Uh, I will be going with Tim and Damien, actually, from the Curly Nerd podcast, hooked us up with tickets. Uh, Pizza Cat MV will also be there, so that should be a fun time for all three of us. I have no idea what to expect. I have watched more wrestling in the past couple weeks than I have ever watched in my life because I like to prepare. I like to study and (laughs) <laughs> kind of get get used to the madness, I guess. So that will actually be on Monday the 1st. Uh, I will try and record some thoughts and conversations about that to land on next week's episode. If not, then while I'm in New York with Jess and Damien from the Curly Nerd Podcast, I definitely will talk to him about it. So yeah, that was the show for this week. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and listening to this podcast. The About to Review podcast can be found on social media at About to Review, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can stream the episodes directly from the website abouttreview.com, which has full links to the show notes and guests. Make sure to like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Blueberry, Alexa via TuneIn, and anywhere else. So for this episode, I have been your host, that guy named John, and we will see you next time. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.